Looking Back in Time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. Good evening, you're very welcome along to The History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and I'm delighted to bring you another episode of the show that celebrates and remembers our past. Coming up on this evening's show, Kilkenny-based filmmaker Kevin Hughes tells us more about his short film, Come Back, which launches soon, and tells the story of the deaths of three men, each of whom died close to the end of the Irish Civil War. The film will be available to see soon and there'll be a public launch Find out where and when a little bit later on. Historical researcher and editorial assistant with the Dictionary of Irish Biography, Terry Clavin, tells us about his book Irish Sporting Lives, which profiles some of our nation's most successful sports people who have passed on. Terry will outline some of the profiles from the book, including the Ballyragget woman who took American tennis by storm in the 1890s. All that to come later. So all of that, plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour. I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.ie sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083 306 9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. Our webpage and podcast for Season 2 of the programme is up and running. You can access it at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show. So you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app and this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. So lots to get through over the course of the next hour and we'll begin with Kilkenny-based filmmaker Kevin Hughes right after these adverts. Do stay tuned. You're on KCLR's History Show. Looking back in time, the history show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back to KCLR's History Show. Filmmaker Kevin Hughes is no stranger to the programme, nor is he a stranger to historical-based film projects. Kevin has made short films such as Jackie, telling the story of Jackie Brett from Mullinahone, a member of the West Kilkenny Flying Column who died following an accidental shooting at Donovan's of Castle John. To avoid being found, Jackie was firstly buried in Lamo graveyard, but was later moved to Mars Farm at Cusan for fear of his body being discovered. Among Kevin's other work is a film that he made in the early 90s titled The Flower and the Rabbit, set in the trenches of World War I. This is the story of a love letter from a girl to her sweetheart on the front line, and how three soldiers, English, French and German, came into contact with this letter and the tragic events that followed. Last year, Kevin appeared on the programme having made a short film called Dear Mother, telling the story of the execution of John Phelan and John Murphy at Kilkenny Barracks, based on the letter written by John Murphy to his mother. A year prior, he also made the historical short The Reburial of Jackie Brett. This evening, however, Kevin is going to tell us about his latest short film, Come Back. The film, which launches soon, tells the story of the deaths of three people, each of whom died close to the end of the Irish Civil War. Kevin told me more about the film when I spoke to him recently for The History Show. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan.
Kevin, can you tell us a little bit more about the film? Well, over the last few years, basically halfway through COVID and then when COVID ended, I've been making films that were exploring the decade of centenaries where we were looking back a hundred years on Irish history. And the first film was The Reburial of Jackie Brett, which is a local story. And the second film was Dear Mother, which is another local story. And I, I, I'd done that twice, so I didn't feel a need to actually just recreate another historic event, even though there's loads of them, but I wanted a bit more of a creative challenge. So I did some research and I found there was loads of little stories near the end of the Irish Civil War. And I was thinking about someone had to be the last one to die in the war. And I said, would it be interesting if you looked at how the tragedy of that can play out? And it's like, it's something that shouldn't happen, but circumstances can sort of cross and things can happen and people end up in the wrong place at the wrong time and they end up dead. So that was what I was trying to explore in the film. And I found there was three stories that were quite pertinent and uh, hit a nerve with me. One was the story of um, a guy called Patrick Martin, which you could say was the backbone of the whole story. And he had taken a gun from an IRA man and he was handing it in to the Free State soldiers and just like as a good citizen should. But when the soldiers saw him with the gun, they shot him dead. So he was just, circumstances had dictated that he was killed at that moment because everyone was on such edge and there was such a sensitivity in the air about what was going on. And I, I can understand the soldiers being nervous all the time because people were trying to kill them. So that there is that element of fear that permeated the air. So I combined that story with another story of a, a young chap who just happened to be shot. His name was Patrick Hanlon. Um, and he was from um, Tipperary, Carrigan Shore. And he was killed at Kilkenny, at Kilkenny Jail. And he was only 16 years of age. So I thought that was really interesting that such a young person had died in the war. And all he was doing was looking out a window. And they just thought he was up to something and they shot him. And the last story was Patrick Barco. And he was shot as well in Shank Hill down in Paulstown. And he was actually a soldier and he was um, on the retreat and he was shot and killed. I thought there was three people near the end of the war whose stories were kind of close to the edge of what would have been peace times. And that tragedy that sort of was something I wanted to explore. So that's why I made the film come back. And I came up with the title because it's sort of double-edged and it, it's sort of come back away from danger. And it's also about us coming back from making the mistakes of the past. And it's, it's also in the story where it's the only two words spoken in the film, two characters. And they, they, it can have different meanings in different contexts. So I wanted to see how I could play with very, very limited dialogue and use just two words to sort of explore the idea of people in time and being requested to come back from where they were. Um, and that's what really inspired the whole thing. How did you carry out your research in preparation for producing this film, Kevin? And did it take a lot of time to carry out that research? No, research is relatively easy. You just do a Google search and you go, Kilkenny, 1923, Irish Civil War, and up pops all these stories. And then you just start reading them. And you you eventually come across something that feels 
like there's a story in there. Just because something happened doesn't necessarily mean there's drama in it, because there's drama in all human life, but drama that can be filmed or it's filmic. And my job was to look for filmic potentials in stories and in history. Um, so I was sort of looking for those elements when I was doing the research. So my, my, I was tuned to that requirement that I need to tell a story and I need to tell it on a, a, in a film and a short film as well. So it had to be quite dense with a very clean arc from beginning to end. So in a short film, you just want to compress as much as you can into it. As many ideas as you can, but also a nice, clean beginning, middle and end. So you feel it's a satisfactory period. And it doesn't feel like you're leaving it out. And that's quite hard because you have to leave stuff out in telling the story. Otherwise, it becomes too dense. But you have to also leave enough in that it actually works as a story. So there's a careful balance there all the time that's going on. But in, in getting back to your question about research, I didn't find that difficult at all. But And it also helped that I'd made two films already. And each film had um, required it, their own intensive research. And the other two films were much harder research because there were real events and I wanted to get it right in terms of facts. Well, facts are written by history, by the winners, but the facts, as far as I can see it, and then impose my own particular prejudice onto that to see like, what would I, what would I have taught back then? What would I feel back then? How would I have analyzed the situation back then? Which is just my imagination in the end, but bringing that to the stories and, and look for the humanity in there as well. So when I'm doing my research, I'm looking for the human element, the human stories, which is usually rooted in tragedy. Because that's what life's about. Lots of tragedies in life, regardless of what happens. And it's all around us now and it's, it's happening all over the world as tragedies unfolding. So you, you be sensitive to that. And you also try to make the story universal when you're looking through your research and say, that resonates now. That's, that's mirroring events that are happening now. And often in wars, you'll find that... Uh, Elements of war are played out repeatedly in history as if we learn nothing about them. Films about this time in our history often explore dark topics. Is there extra pressure on you as a filmmaker to stay true to these events and to the people that endured them? Because the stories sometimes are rooted in real events, they're, they're imbued with a, um, a sensitive nature. You don't want to disrespect anyone that's featured in this story. You, you want to be sensitive to people that are still alive today that actually have relations that were probably part of these stories. So there is a, a great deal of sensitivity required. But when it comes to telling a story, it's just my perspective. I, I bring my own particular biases and my own angle on the story and I look for a way into the story which would be my way into the story. So everyone would have a different way of approaching the story. But what would resonate with me would be the elements that I find interesting. And then I would explore those and yet tell the story as best I can. But because it's a recreation or a dramatization, it's never going to be 100% accurate. But hopefully the sense of accuracy is in it or the respect for accuracy and the respect for people that are in it is something that I would be um, aware of and be careful about. But nonetheless, I also have a duty as a filmmaker to be a filmmaker and apply my own perspective to it and print and be damned, if you like. So in a lot of ways, I would be sensitive, but in other ways, I'd say, well, what can I explore here? And what's really interesting here for not just me, but people that will watch it?
So I would compress elements and expand elements, but just I would always be aware that yeah, this, this, these things happened somewhere and people were affected by them, which does affect me. So then it would affect the story. And in that way, just by being sensitive to it, I am respecting them. And my casting crew wouldn't necessarily have been history buffs or interested in history as much as I would have been because I was working on these stories. They would have been handed a script so they would already be confined to what it was exploring. And they didn't need to go beyond that script other than asking me how to execute it. So in a lot of ways, the work was done for them and they didn't have to do any research. And their own personal interest in history, which I think is quite deep in Ireland, we have a, an interest in history. Most people have. And when they are actually engaging with it like that, they get a bit more aware and a bit more curious about what was going on. And they ask me questions, all right. But ultimately, they're coming on as artists. They're coming on as creative people. And their job, if you like, and their, their desire is to actually explore something that is rooted in history, but also as a story that they can tell. And they bring the, their own contemporary issues to it. Like we wouldn't be kind of time traveling in that sense, other than we create the world as best we can and we dress people up as best we can. But ultimately, their, their engagement with history is through the story and confined to that. Did you seek assistance from anyone in the historical realm locally for context or expertise when putting together this film? When I was making the film, it was really a self-contained project. It was me sitting at the computer at the start looking for a story. And once I found one, I said, oh, I'm off now. I didn't really need to ask anyone, any experts about it. And because this particular story and comeback is actually a combination of stories, there wouldn't have been anyone that would have been able to help me because I was already telling a story that was unique, that was attempting to capture the tragedy and the, the elements of things that were going on at the time that were interesting me. So it wasn't, there was, the historic sense, yes. Costumes, yes. Um, props, yes. I would have explored all of them and I'd ask people, like, what's going on here? What should I look out for? And it's actually always difficult to recreate a world because everywhere you point the camera, there's elements from our time in the shot or there's clothes that you can't put on screen because they look out of their time. So you have all those, those historic props and historic costumes to deal with, but not the story. Because I haven't done the other two films as well, I already was kind of in that world. I sort of knew what elements I wanted to work with in that world. Um, and I had a sense of the world. I, I could feel that world. I was, it was easy to get back there and tell the story, saying, oh, I've been here before. And OK, I'm in here now. And this is the way I'm going to tell the story that respects the period. Having said all that, I did talk to Larry Scanlon from um, Army Barracks in Kilkenny. And he's always been a great help because he curates the museum over there and knows all about that period. So just having a chat with Larry always helps to put you straight in case you're unsure of any elements about dealing with history and the period. Kevin, where can people see the film? When the film was finished, which is only recently, I approached Anna O'Sullivan in Butler Gallery. And Butler Gallery being brilliant, they've shown the last two films to fantastic receptions. People have sought them out and come and saw them in the digital gallery in the in the in the gallery the main gallery and um anna has facilitated that and i really appreciate that and it's the same this time the minute i said the film was finished she went to great trouble to find a slot to put the film in 
So it will be shown on the 24th and the 25th and the 26th of November. And it'll be on all day. So you can just, once you go in there, it'll be on a loop. And the film is eight minutes long, so it's not too big an investment in time. And hopefully people will have an emotional experience when they're engaging with it. And when they are, because it's an art gallery, it, it helps the film feel like a, it's a piece of art as well as a story and, and just a film being shown somewhere. It just does elevate the film. And I'm really grateful to Butler Gallery for that. Where can people see your previous work? This film is one of three. And the first one was um, The Reburial of Jackie Brett. And the second one was Dear Mother. And this is the last one, which has come back. And they're all part of the Decade of Centenaries celebrations. The films are available to see online as part of the Kilkenny County Council Arts Office. And a big thank you to filmmaker Kevin Hughes for coming on the programme and telling us more about his latest film titled Comeback. Wasn't the music from the film just wonderful? A special shout out to Billy Carrigan and James Rice who uh, both did the music that plays during the death scene of the film and also to Mariam Inglesby who did the rest of the music. As Kevin has been saying, the film will be first shown at Butler Gallery on the 24th, 25th and 26th of November, and the best of luck to Kevin and everyone else involved in that. That's it for part one of the programme, but do join me again, where I'll be speaking to historical researcher and editorial assistant with the Dictionary of Irish Biography, Terry Clavin, who will be telling us more about his book, Irish Sporting Lives. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back to part three of tonight's History Show. Now for a topic that we haven't covered on the programme in quite a while, and that's sport. Terry Clavin is a historical researcher and editorial assistant with the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which is a project of the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. Terry, along with co-writer Torlock O'Reardon, has written a book titled Irish Sporting Lives, which profiles some of the most famous and successful Irish sports people who are no longer with us. I spoke to Terry recently about the book, and as part of our conversation, Terry profiled three of the sports people that appear in the book one of whom will be of particular interest to our Kilkenny listeners. Wednesday nights from 6, this is KCLR's History Show. Irish Sporting Lives, it's, um, it comprises 60 short biographies of Irish sports figures um, going back to the, to the 19th century. And all of these lives are, are drawn from the, the Dictionary of Irish Biography. The DIB is Ireland's foremost work of biographical reference, and it contains over 11,000 biographies of noted, consequential or otherwise interesting people spanning the entire sweep of Irish history. And all of these lives are freely available on our website at www.dib.ie. That's www.dib.ie. Now, to be included in the DIBs in the main, a good thing. It's a form of recognition. 
but it's not a club you'd be in a hurry to join. Uh, for you see, the most basic rule for inclusion is that you have to be dead. The second is that you must either be born in Ireland or have an Irish career. So you can be born in Ireland, go abroad and have a non-Irish career, that's all fine. Or you can be born abroad and come to Ireland. So maybe someone like Jack Charlton, who's English, but has a very significant career as manager of the Irish soccer team. Each DIB biography contains the essential facts of a person's life, but we want our entries to be more than just a catalogue of facts. So we encourage our writers to offer analysis and appraisal and maybe provide a little colour in the form of anecdotes or quotes. And I suppose ideally what we're looking for is something that would be um, accessible to the general reader, but useful also to the specialist scholar. So most of the biographies would be 800 to 1800 words long and relatively few go above 2000 words. Irish Sporting Lives then is uh, a collection of 60 lives that are culled from the DIB. Myself and Thurlow O'Reardon, my DIB colleague Thurlow O'Reardon, were the editors of the Irish Sporting Lives volume. And this is the second in a series of teams publications that draw upon the DIB. The first one dealt with Irish immigrants to America. So out of the um, 550 people active within the sporting realm, within the DIB, we narrowed it down to 60 lives for the purposes of this book. And I should say, because of our dead persons only rule, I don't expect to see the likes of Roy Keane, Brian O'Driscoll or Casey Taylor uh, featuring here. But we do have plenty of household names like George Best, Jack Charlton, uh, Jack Kyle, Christy Ring and Alex Higgins, uh, along with many other less well-known but uh, equally fascinating figures. And in fact, uh, I feel really that the strength of the book lies with some of the lesser known names. So I suppose the first thing we did in, in putting the book together was selecting the 60 lives we were going to include. This is probably the hardest part, indeed, of the book. Um, so obviously, we wanted people who were the best and most successful at their sport, you know, like Christy Ring, widely considered the greatest hurler ever. Vincent O'Brien was voted the greatest trainer in both flat and national hunt racing. But we didn't just want uh, the greats. Uh, this is not a list of the 60 greatest Irish sporting sports people. Our aim was to provide readers with material that's uh, informative and engaging, hence the inclusion of people who are more uh, perhaps sports celebrities than sports greats. I'm thinking here of maybe the playboy boxer Jack Doyle. Uh, we have the inclusion of colourful characters like rugby's Moss Keane and some infamous ones too, like Vera Gould, who is the only Wimbledon tennis finalist to be convicted for murder. We also wanted to highlight the careers of those who've been unjustly neglected. Now, many of the women in this book would fall into that category. They were not celebrated in their lifetimes, but they're now um, attaining new relevance because they're seen as sports trailblazers. I'd single out here Anne O'Brien, who was one of the best women soccer players in the world in the 70s and 80s. But uh, she's unknown really in Ireland, partly because she spent most of her career in Italy. Then we have those who have careers that are of intrinsic interest, uh, perhaps in terms of shedding light on the sport or in wider society. I'm thinking here maybe of Mike McTeague, who's many respected journeyman boxer, but he has a very interesting career. He's involved in very many interesting fights. And in fact, he becomes world light middleweight champion in a fight staged amid the chaos of the Irish Civil War in Dublin in 1922. We have those who achieve a sports first, a sporting first, perhaps winning a first gold medal for Ireland in the Olympics, such as the hammer thrower Pat O'Callaghan, who won a gold medal for Ireland at the 1928 Olympics. Then there are people who progress their sport by developing a new technique or strategy. Bill McCracken, the soccer player who played for Newcastle in 1900s and 1910s, his clever defensive uh, tactics 
force the authorities to change soccer's offside law. And finally, if you're top class at more than one sport, uh, that would stand to you also when we were making our selection. So Kevin O'Flanagan uh, gets in because he was a top class rugby and soccer player of the 30s and 40s. Further to that, we wanted a, a kind of diversity in our selection. We wanted a spread of certain factors. So first of all, there's a spread of sports in our um, selection of 60. So the main sports rugby, soccer, GAA are well represented. We have the more niche sports. We have a croquet player, we have uh, an archery specialist as well. Uh, secondly, we wanted some chronological spread. So there are only three pre-1870s careers and none before 1800, and that's because organized sport only really begins to emerge from the 1860s. Most of our sports careers congregate between the, the early to mid 20th century, and then the numbers fall off from the 70s because most of the people there are still alive. We were very keen on having um, gender diversity. In this volume, 30% of the lives featured are of women which we feel is a good proportion, given that women were actively discouraged from participating in sport within Ireland up until very recently. There was also a lack of research on the history of women's sport that's only really been remedied in, in the past 10 years. We tried to get a good geographic spread. So 24 of the 32 counties of Ireland are represented. There, there is a bit of a concentration in Dublin and Belfast because sporting activity starts there earlier. Uh, sporting facilities are there in cities earlier before they're in the countryside. And we also wanted to make sure that the Irish diaspora was well represented in the book too. Um, and then we wanted a mix of team and individual sports. And then within team sports, we tried to have a spread of positions. There's a tendency perhaps for attackers to hog all the glory. And that tendency was apparent to an extent in our selection, but we did try to include some defenders and a goalie also. It's very clear that you went to great lengths in terms of the depth of your research, Terry, particularly in ensuring that all demographics were catered for. And indeed, in terms of the personalities that you picked, you did a great job of achieving geographical spread insofar as was possible. You're going to profile three sports stars that are featured in the book for us today. The first of which was an Irish rugby star who controversially defected to rugby league back in the day. Can you tell us more about him? Yeah, like I said, the Rugby World Cup is on, so rugby is topical here at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, Ken Goodall uh, is, was an outstanding back row forward. And he, in fact, his first cap for Ireland at the age of only 19, 1967. And within two years, he's pretty much regarded as the best back row forward in world rugby, uh, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. He's totally dominant in the line-out, which was particularly invaluable in the 1960s because this is a period when lifting was prohibited in the line-out so it's much easier to win a line-out off the other team's throw and you could kick directly into touch from anywhere on the pitch with the line-out occurring where the ball left the field of play so a typical rugby match could easily feature about 50 to 80 line-outs so this is a key advantage for uh, any, all the teams he played on benefit from but however his, his glittering career his glittering international career in rugby union is curtailed at the age of just 22 when he uh, converts to rugby league in summer 1970 he had been uh, financially struggling and he was swayed by the prospect of a much higher salary with the English rugby league club Workington Town in fact he enjoys a very fast start in rugby league and he scores 13 tries in his first 11 games but injuries begin to take their toll thereafter and his career peters out through injury after just four seasons. And then when he returns to Ireland, he finds that he had committed the greatest possible sin in the eyes of the IRFU. Uh, he was formally ostracised and technically barred from even setting foot in a rugby ground. Many of his uh, former international teammates were worried about being seen drinking with him in public. Um, 
But uh, over time, that changes. Um, in 1989, he's reinstated to rugby union and he was able to work laterally as a rugby coach in his native Ulster. I suppose his career highlights the, the persistence, the continued the enduring strength of the amateur ideal well into the 20th century. But also as well, when you read about how rugby was played in the 50s and 60s and 70s, gives you a sense of how sports are constantly evolving. Rugby in particular has changed a lot throughout the course of its history. We're all aware of the big changes that happened in rugby when it went professional in the 90s, but there were big changes occurring before then. And I suppose when you read about these lives, it brings home to you that the past can be a foreign country and all that, and that a sport that you think you understand can come to seem almost quite alien to you when you study its past more closely. Terry, tell us more about the Kilkenny-born woman who conquered US tennis in the 1890s. Yes, uh, Mabel, Mabel Cahill, who hails from uh, rural county Kilkenny, uh, Ballyragget. She's born into a landowning Catholic family and is caught up in the tennis craze that swept the upper classes of Britain and Ireland in the late 1870s. In the late 1890s, she emigrates to New York City. Once in New York, she gets the benefit of the higher standard of tennis that then prevailed in Ireland compared to the USA. And she goes on to dominate US tennis from 1890. And she in fact effectively retires undefeated in 1893. She wins the singles, doubles and mixed doubles titles at the US Open in 1891 and she repeats this clean sweep again in 1892. There's a photo of her in the book uh, that really gives you a a sense of the elaborately impractical attire of um, 19th century women tennis players who would be expected to perform in, you know, heel boots, long sleeves, headgear, a necktie and an ankle length dress over a petticoat. And this is of relevance for one of the most important matches of her career, the 1892 US Open singles finals, which she looked like she was going to lose. But that is until she cooled indoors during the interval prior to the deciding set while her opponent stayed out in the intense heat wearing all those clothes. So I think it must have made a big difference. Mabel is not a popular champion in America and she's much criticised for her masculine style of play, which we should take really to be just a reference to her energy around the court. Few opponents could cope with her serve, which was invariably delivered overhead. And this technique was considered unusual enough to be worth mentioning in newspaper reports. For her part, she maintained that women who played the ball decorously from the wrist rather than powerfully through the shoulder were putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage. In any event, though her tactics, as I said, her masculine tactics, as they called them, were controversial. Her American rivals were soon all emulating her. Tennis was then strictly amateur and financial pressures likely forced her early retirement in 1893. She moves to England and there she falls into poverty. And uh, she's actually working as a chorus girl in seaside musicals when she dies in total obscurity. She dies in such obscurity that the circumstances of her death were for many years a mystery until research published online by Mark Ryan as recently as 2016 revealed the circumstances of her death. So it's a... It's a sad end, I suppose, for someone who came across as a determined and fiery character and someone who very much wanted to chart her own course. Finally, Terry, someone who perhaps might be a bit more familiar to modern-day Irish sports fans, uh, the Dublin Gaelic footballer and coach Kevin Heffernan. He'll always be remembered as the man who brought life back to Hill 16. Dublin became the Manchester United of Gaelic football, always attracting huge crowds wherever they played. In all, Heffernan took Dublin to eight All-Ireland finals and they won four of them. Yeah, uh, Kevin Heffernan, um, I suppose both as a player and a coach, he drives the modernisation of Gaelic football from the 1950s. Um, he grows up in Dublin uh, near the GAA hotbed of Fairview and he plays football and hurling 
for the St. Vincent's club there and he helps turn uh, St. Vincent's into really the powerhouse of Gaelic football. The Vincent's club team, it breaks radically with the catch and kick orthodoxy in GAA by developing a revolutionary short passing game, uh, which would be which is also based on running with the ball and, a, and on a great deal of movement off the ball. This is a strategy that's ideal for Heffernan, who's a fast, skillful and intelligent corner forward, but was not the most physically robust player. These same short passing tactics were then adopted by the Dublin Gaelic football team, uh, where Heffernan featured as a roving full forward. And again, this was a time when full forwards were expected to be strong and powerful, but Heffernan defied this expectation and by dropping deep to to win the ball from his teammates, and then he would use his speed to jink past the lumbering fullbacks. But during his playing career, he he wins just one All Ireland with Dublin, and um, they lose the famous final to Kerry in 1955, and this Kerry team that played in a more orthodox style. And the general impression you get is that uh, the Dublin teams that Kevin Heffernan played for were perhaps a little bit too idealistic for their own good. And it, it's interesting that in his subsequent a uh, very successful career as a football coach. The teams were far more pragmatic and ruthless, in fact, you could say. Um, and as the Dublin coach for much of the 70s and 80s, he brought an unprecedented level of sophistication and rigour to his team's physical conditioning and to team tactics as well. The success of his Dublin teams led to a huge revival of interest in the GAA within Dublin and indeed throughout the country, not least due to the tremendous rivalry that developed between his Dublin team and the great Kerry team coached by Nico Dwyer. Heffernan was really, he was, he's the first modern GAA coach. Um, for him, GAA teams are really coached by committee and the designated coach or trainer, as they were then called, was a, a low-key figure of relatively little influence. Now, by contrast then, Heffernan had total control over the selection and training of his players and he exerted his authority very much with, with uh, an iron fist. So he's a uh, He's very much a pivotal figure in the development of the GA and in the progress of the GA uh, to the modern era. Finally, Terry, can you tell our listeners where can they get the book? I suppose, first of all, asking your local bookshop. Uh, they may have it or they may be able to order it for you, but I can guarantee you can get it on uh, through the Royal Irish Academy's website at www.ria.ie. That's ria.ie. And it retails at €20. Euro. And a huge thank you to Terry Clavin there, co-writer of the book Irish Sporting Lives. The book is available in bookshops now and should you not find it from your local bookseller, it's certainly available from the Royal Irish Academy's website. That's www.ria.ie. That website once again, ria.ie. And the best of congratulations to Terry and Turlock with what is a very, very accomplished piece of work there. I'm sure you can agree with that. Time for another ad break now on the programme, but do stay tuned because we'll be hearing the very first short part of our chat with Willie Byrne on the IRA siege of Hugginstown RIC barracks. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes' time. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Grail Talk, Sport and Media. 
You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to the final part of tonight's History Show. The village of Hugginstown in South Kilkenny holds a significant place in the county's history due to a pivotal event during the War of Independence. The 1st and 7th Battalions of the old IRA laid siege to the RIC barracks there, marking the third successful RIC barracks attack of the war. To tell us more about this, here's a preview of next week's chat with local historian and chairperson of Guardian on Goethe, Famine Memorial Garden, Willie Byrne, as he begins to set the scene. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. After 1916, after the rising when it didn't work out for the Irish people, Sinn Féin groups were um, were formed again and organised in County Kilkenny and all over Ireland. And um, Irish volunteer companies were organised and in South Kilkenny and in Hogestown. Father Delahunty, the famous priest from Callan, and Father Henneberry and Pat Welch from Dunamagan, who died in Knocknagres, were the most prominent people associated with organising this work. They they usually, for, for Hogginstown now, <clears throat> they met under the guise of a football, in a football field. And it was organised there to give messages around. The first officers of the Huggleston Company were William Farrell, Captain, Thomas Byrne, First Lieutenant, and Nicholas Carroll, Second Lieutenant. And they were in part of the 7th Callan Battalion. James Rowan of Arnold Callan was elected the battalion commandant. Huggleston RIC barracks attack was carried out on Monday night at 11 30 p.m. on March 8, 1920. Thomas Nolan from Kilkenny brought out the bombs and they were stored in Halloran's Haggard in Hogestown Village. Tom Tracy was OC in charge of this attack and other senior officers present were James Lawler, Kilkenny City, Leo Darseth, Kilkenny, Jim Rowan and Pat Welch of Dunamaga. Joe McMahon from County Clare was also present and he was in charge of the bombing party. 36 men took part in the Hogestown barrack attack from various companies in the battalion areas. There was a sergeant and five constables in the RIC barracks that night. Constable Ryan was fatally wounded that night. And unfortunately he died and he was buried in Balbrickham Cemetery in Washford. The British military arrested about 20 local men after the attack and they were first taken to Kilkenny Barracks, military barracks, and then on to Cork Prison, and then on to Belfast Prison by Bosch, and finally on to Wormwood Scrubs Prison. And that's just a very, very quick preview of the chat I'll be having in full with Willie Byrne next week about the storming of the RAC barracks at Hugginstown. And thank you very much uh, to Willie for that. And indeed, thanks to all of our contributors on tonight's programme. But that's all for this evening's programme. Thanks so much to for joining me. We'll do it all over again next week. Just after the six o'clock news, do stay tuned. Own Carey's up next with Fully Loaded. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltoch, Sport and Media.